Hi, and welcome to our Big Book Workshop. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org. In each workshop, Alcoholic Women in Recovery will use their personal experience and knowledge to help listeners better understand specific topics relating to the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. At the end, our speakers will answer questions from the workshop audience. More information about attending our meetings, classes, and workshops can be found at MagdalenHouse.org forward slash meetings. Please note, the curriculum we teach through our programs at Maggie's is from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. However, we are not an Alcoholics Anonymous group, and we are not associated with AA. Thanks for listening. We're so glad you're here. All right, welcome to the Magdalene House Big Book Workshop on the doctor's opinion. Well, my name is Nina Herndon. I am a very grateful recovered alcoholic. I've been sober since January 5th of 2015. I did not go through the Magdalene House. It became part of my, I was calling my sponsor one day, making a 10th step, and she was like, you need to go to the Magdalene House, and you need to find a woman to talk to who's staying there and shut up and listen. I was like, oh, God. (laughs) And I really didn't know, and, you know, the old house, it had two doors, and I didn't know which door to go into, and I was scared, and I just, you know, and I came, and I... I never stopped coming. I loved this community and I love this place and I love this new place and it's been pivotal in my recovery. I had the privilege of, of doing a lot of stuff here so I'm really grateful to do this workshop with y'all. When you leave the house you should come to my Zoom meeting at noon um, on Fridays because I'm always happy to see people there. But like I said Donna is going to be a little bit late I just close that and what we'll kind of do is we'll start and then she'll come in and but we definitely want to give you some time for question and answers at the end so if you think of something you know like write it down or try really hard to remember it but most of y'all have notebooks so but yeah so we'll go ahead and get started I love the doctor's opinion and I was so excited when Raquel asked me to do this I was just listening to the Joe and Charlie tapes on my drive over here. I live in Fort Worth, so as I was getting ready, I was listening to them. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever listened to the Joe and Charlie tapes, but you can find them on Spotify. They're great. But I was kind of, you know, practicing this with my wife last night because I'm used to, I feel like I can, like, go in and, and tell my story, and I can go in and talk about, you know, steps one, two, and three, or, you know, maybe another step, you know, but... Talking on a specific chapter, I was a little bit nervous. So this is such a good chapter. And it starts off on page XXV. And, you know, I was really, because what I'm not yet is I'm not a, I'm not a AA history buff yet. I know there's been some cool workshops here about um, women in AA history and stuff like that. Um, And I was kind of telling my wife, I was like, I'm not like a history buff in general. And so... I'm not just intrigued to go learn about the history of something, but now that I'm in recovery, it's interesting because it affects me, right? And so I'm going to share a little bit of what I understand about the history of this um, to the best of my ability, and then hopefully Donna will share her wisdom with us too. But so the doctor's opinion, just what it starts off with is we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. 
convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So we know that this letter is signed by William D. Silkworth. It's kind of on that next page. And But so William D. Silkworth is, he was at the time that he wrote this, he was working at basically a 1930s treatment center. Um, it was more medical than Maggie is. Maggie's is, so it was more of like a, a rehab. But he actually was interested in alcoholics before, well before this when he was actually in school. But he realized apparently alcoholics don't pay their bills and that it just wasn't where he was going to make a lot of money. And so he had an interest in alcoholics. He went on and, and kind of built his career. And then, of course, around this time is when the stock market crashed and um, the start of the Great Depression happened. And he found himself working at this, the, it was called Towns Hospital. And he, Bill, uh, Bill Wilson, who we know is the co-founder of AA and, you know, really spearheaded this program and, and writing this, this program for us um, in this book, came through and was in the care of, of Dr. William B. Silkworth. And, you know, what Dr. William D. Silkworth noticed in treating all of these, the men and women that would come into this facility was that for the most part, you know, there would be people that came in and would, you would never see them again, right? And, but there was the people that kept coming back and they kept coming back and they kept coming back and they were worse and they were worse and they were worse. And as a doctor, he was, you know, he was already interested in alcoholics, but as a doctor, he was like wanting to help us, to fix us, right? Like that's why doctors generally go into that field is because they want to help people and they want to help people fix what's wrong with them physically or mentally, or at least find a solution. And he was having a really hard time. And so he starts off his first letter saying, uh, to whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. And in this, he's talking about Bill Wilson. In the course of his third treatment, so he's been, this is his now third time, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals, sorry, I don't know how to say that word, of alcoholism. These men have well, have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely on absolutely anything they say to you about themselves. So that was his first kind of letter that he gave to AA. And what they were looking for, what the, the first 100 were looking for, was somebody who medically could back up what, what they were saying in this book. Because they weren't, they were doctors, and so they, they wanted the opinion of a professional medical person to write an opinion on this. And what I find really fascinating, and 
Joe and Charlie were really going into this, but this is it because it was written in 1939, a little bit around that time. They didn't have the medical research that we do now. We have so much more now, and even 20 years ago, we had so much more than we did. Uh, but what this does is it backs up scientific research that we can now easily Google on the internet. Now we know not to Google and trust anything that we read, but this is <laughs> this is based on um, factual. It, it is an opinion that we can now confer with with factual information. So. They were interested because the way that the doctor presented it, and I know you guys and Maggie's who've been coming to meeting after meeting after meeting, you're like, oh my God, the doctor's opinion, the allergy, we know. But this was such a pivotal point for Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and really what it did, really what Dr. William DeSolkworth was doing was he was giving legitimacy to what 100 drunks were writing, Right. And the cool thing was, is in, in the first edition of the big book, like the very first time it was printed and it was sent it out, sent out in 1939, he didn't put his name on it. He was like, yeah, I'll write you an opinion, but you please do not put my name on that. <laughs> uh, because it, he was worried for his reputation. We know there's stigma around alcoholism and addiction now. Can you imagine what it was like in 1939? You, you didn't... You know, like you got locked up in an insane asylum, like if you were too much. And so um, the stigma was very, very big back then. And he, just in case, didn't want, you know, his name tangled up in that. And, you know, what would eventually happen about 15, 20 years later is this book, you know, became incredibly well respected. It was growing in popularity. People were getting sent to this book all across the country. You know, there was press being written about it. And so in the second edition, he was like, yeah, you can put my name to it. <laughs> but he has a very, so I'm going to go back to where I left off on the XXVI right after his sign off. He says, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement, which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well, and our belief any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. So, you know, they are really interested that the, the doctor's theory of this, this allergy. And I was really enjoying the way that, that uh, Joe and Charlie were talking about this because, you know, it, it just... It was so um, interesting and it was so like new and profound, right? This, this allergy, this abnormal reaction. So if we go over to where he's writing on the next page, XXVII, it says the doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. 
I say this after many years' experience as a medical director for one of the largest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a real a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Donna's here. Hi. That's okay. Come on in. What's what? The confetti. Hi, welcome. Sorry. You're okay. I know. We just I told them we would get started and then you would jump in. You look lovely. Thank you. You made it. You said you're 75. I did. Let me turn off my phone. Okay. And so we're just jumped in. We just jumped in. I was kind of giving a little bit of history about the doctor's opinion. Um and how Dr. William D. Silkworth got asked to do this letter and he didn't uh, want to put his name to it for the first uh, edition and then the second edition he did. And then just how, you know, we started reading this the second letter. So we already got through the first letter, but I was just finishing or starting to read the, the second letter. So I'm going to finish reading through this page and then we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Okay. So many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book, who was Bill Wilson, came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive in their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical allergy, for, physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Um, and, you know, he's kind of laying out the story of how this came to be, right? It, it, he is explaining that Bill Wilson was somebody that came in and they actually saw something change in Bill and, and they were really interested in that. And, you know, I think it's kind of humorous that he, that Bill wanted to tell his story and, and the doctors are, are kind of, you know, well, I don't know how we feel about that. You know, he's just a drunk. He's been here. This is his third time. Sounds like my husband. <laughs> a little, a little, uh, dark rack, you know, doesn't want us to talk. And then it starts to get into this physical craving for liquor. So this is kind of where we set the, the stage of Dr. William B. Silkworth was saying that nothing was going to be beneficial if these people still have liquor in their system. There's no way. So I'm going to pause there and let you... Hi, I'm Donna. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Donna. <laughs> um, my sobriety date is February 4th of 2010. Um, did you talk a little bit about yourself or did you just jump right in? I didn't talk about myself. I, I figured we'd share some as we go. Okay. And so did you, did, was that the first reading you did? Yeah, I, I just apologize. read up to here. No, it's okay. 
Um, I just read up to here, so we've read everything up to here. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, and so you've already had two musts, right? Mm. Yeah. I tried to get sober for a long time with no sobriety. And um, I was under the... Someone had told me that it was about one day at a time and that it was about coming to a bunch of meetings and and that it was a program of suggestion and that there were no musts in the program. And so right here, we've already had two and we're not even into like the chapters yet, right? We're not even in chapter one yet. And so one of them, right, is that as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conception to other alcoholics. So this is Bill going to his doctor, going, oh, I have this idea. And, um, and so the idea was that he needed to impress upon other alcoholics, right, what, what he had learned from the doctor about his physical component, and then God miraculously, um, the other part, right, the miracle part, um, but that they must do still likewise with others. So the first must is not only am I supposed to come and come to a bunch of meetings and get a desire chip or whatever that looked like for me for a long time, but that I must must do with others. And so I can guarantee you when I got sober, I thought, like, you don't understand. But I was, I'd had that valid step one experience, which the doctor's opinion really helped me with. And so I must carry this message, right? And so as I'm doing the work, I don't think it's working, don't feel like it's working in it's educational variety, right? But I was told, it was the suggestion was my sponsor said, you're gonna need to raise your hand when they say you can sponsor, right? And it's just like, what? But I, I must do this. So I just thought, whatever, like no one's gonna pick me anyway. And until it was like, isn't anyone ever gonna pick me, right? And, and so it's just funny, but that first must, even though I felt unable or you know, equipped to do it. Somehow in, in the process, the doing of that, right? Even, I think I had some relief before I ever even sponsored anybody. <laughs> but it was definitely a must, is that this isn't just something that I come and take. And so I always thought AA was like, oh, I need a meeting. I'm gonna, I need to go, right? So that I can get something from it. When in reality, right, the idea was to not do that anymore and to have the information digested and the spiritual experience around it, right, that made it so that we're there to give, which that in itself was just different than anything. I mean, I knew there was usually that one person that sponsored everybody, right, so I moved it and it moved a lot of places and there was always, you know, Miss whoever she was <laughs> in the back and she'd been sober for 25 years and if you want a sponsor talk to her and then all of us right are relapsing every three days <laughs> or every three weeks or whatever it was and so now I know it's because the must was that she was doing that the perfect proverbial she but and then in this statement which confirms what we who have suffered and this is XXVI the second must says, in this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, right? And so at some level, this is, I'm like, okay. Um, but it says that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind, right? And so I heard that. I'd heard this idea of it being a illness 
a disease, an allergy, all those things. And I just thought, okay. But it's important, I think, that it's something that we must believe, right? What I'm experiencing when I ingest alcohol is not normal. It's not the normal reaction people have, <laughs> i.e., you know, it's a um, depressant, right? So my central nervous system is slowing down, right? You know, it's, it's supposed to make you tired. My speech in, is starting to be impaired. Like, all of these things are actually happening to me, just like anybody else who's drinking alcohol. But I don't feel it, right? When Susie, my coworker, right, drinks it, and she's on the third drink, and, you know, she goes to the restroom, and she's like, whoa. You know, she is, she's aware of what is actually happening, right? And the thing is, I don't feel that. <laughs> like, my experience is very different. I feel more in control, even, right? Like, I don't even think I, I need to ride home anymore or, or whatever. And so it's just this abnormal condition that my body is, is doing. And so for the layperson, they're just like, what? But for an alcoholic, we go, oh, yeah. I mean, it's this, I never wanted to do it. I didn't mean to do it. I was only going to have one. But because of the opinion um, being proven, right, to myself, like I had to test that opinion many times, but um, it proved to be fact. Yeah. And the allergy, it just... I think too in the way that they give us this this explanation and, and I love what you were saying about how it just <laughs> I feel like I'm in control um, and I remember one time my wife was like yeah you know if I have like too many drinks it starts to taste like poison and I'm like huh it tastes like water to me the more that I drink it but you know this is this this abnormal reaction this allergy and it gives a lot of, you know, I think, and the, the words that the doctor uses to this, it gives a lot of depth and weight to this because it didn't make sense that um, I could just be drinking so much because of my circumstances. It, it, it just, it, and especially for me, when I no longer wanted to have that much to drink. Like, I, I, I wanted to have that much to drink for a while. I wanted to have a good time. I liked who I was better when I was drinking than who I was sober. And so I wanted to bring that person out. But then I started to notice that people didn't like the drug sloppy girl that wants to drive herself home when she's absolutely wasted and making a fool and all this stuff. And I didn't want to do that anymore. And the, the aggravating, most frustrating thing is, why am I doing this? Why can't I just have three or six? Like, six is my sweet spot. That's all I want. I, I don't want to be, you know. And so this allergy that, that the doctor presents in this, it's, it gives us, I feel like, something to seek, sink my teeth into. Because I could understand, I could understand what was being explained to me about the mind, like in my heart, I could understand it. Like I was like, yeah, that's me. But I couldn't like put the pieces together in my brain. It was very confusing to me. Um, and maybe because it's centered in my brain. But the body thing, once I got over the hump of like, I'm not allergic to anything. Once I got over that, like I could see it. I could look back at my drinking and be like, oh my God, 
no one like I see it now I see all the the funny faces that people were giving me when I was you know asking where we were going to go after the bars closed at 2 a.m and they're like I don't know home and I'm like but there's no alcohol here you know so this I, I like I really started to see these things about myself that um I, I wouldn't otherwise have and that was really that was really helpful to me and I know we haven't even dug into one thing reading. you said uh, circumstances right and so and that's the other thing so when my circumstances change right so I thought it was because of the man and the job and the you know all the the things but then I would change the man and the job in the city and the you know what I mean and so that too, like it took me proving to myself, well, maybe it's not that, because circumstances unfortunately just don't matter a bit, right? Otherwise, I mean, and and to a hard drinker, which is so baffling to us because they drink like we do, but they still don't experience that phenomenon of craving, right? They're like we were when I just like getting hammered or you know whatever, and but given a reason, they can just stop. And we keep thinking, like, I'm going to do that, too, when my reason's good enough. But then, you know, glug, 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 husband number whatever, and it's like, when is it ever going to be a reason good enough? <laughs> <laughs> number five, you know that? Yeah. Let's say it's a number five, it'll be better. <laughs> so I'll just pick up where we left off, and then we, we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Okay, so... Right there where we always read on XXVIII, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line, see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children, let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic move- movement now growing up among them. We'll stop there. You want to go first? Yeah. So this is the doctor's opinion, right? And so he's writing this from years, uh, I think it was over a decade, of experience with alcoholics. And so, um, at, and someone who really wanted to help, right? So apparently it's like even in your sleeping moments. So he's thinking about it, I guess, when he can't sleep and then dreaming about it when he can, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I just think it's so cool because he was willing to say like we science has tried have tried everything um pretty much to no avail right not to no avail with that 90 percent. with that 90 percent, they're having huge success right they 
go home and they're done and they're like, thanks for the information, right? But the, this, this book is about that 10%, that small percentage of his patients that were relapsing, right? Coming back. Um, and to that, they really didn't have any effect, right? And not only were they having no effect, but that they were um, getting worse, mm -hmm. even though they were going through the same exact treatments as the 90 who would never come back again. Um, and so I think that is, um, it's interesting too, because like you were saying, like, why would you listen to this drunk who da 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 da, you know, and why would that have any effect or whatever? Well, I don't know, but it does, right? This, this idea that uh, God gave Bill, um, you know, through work with Ebby, right, a former sponsor, and then this doctor who, who had this physical component kind of locked down. But like my sponsor says, if the physical component were the only problem, right, then just stopping drinking would be the answer. Like once I was super sober, like 72 hours later or whatever, <laughs> I would never do it again. But the fact of the matter is, when I pick up that first drink, I'm sober, right? It, it's not the physical component that's going to kill me. It's the mental. Mm -hmm. And I love that he adds this, this part about like, if, if you think that what we're saying is a little bit sentimental or a little bit cheesy or a little bit like, mm -hmm, like, like stand here and watch with us. Like what we are seeing, like they could not comprehend the fact that they could help the majority of these people that were coming into treatment. Cause we know people that end up in treatment, they're not always alcoholics or addicts. They were coming in and they were leaving and never coming back because they got the treatment and they were done. They're like, I sure as heck don't ever want to go to a place like that ever again. No, thank you. And that meant either moderating their drinking or stopping completely and no problem with that. And then he's like, but these people, they keep coming back. They keep coming back. They keep coming back and they're worse. And, uh, you know, it's keeping him up at night. And he kind of starts to get into what this is going to go into. But I know to... I don't want to say beat a dead horse, but with this paragraph that we always go to, especially here, I like to point out a couple of things that I learned about this. So an allergy is an abnormal reaction. I thought an allergy was something that I could physically see or um, experience. And I was really curious about what this word phenomenon meant. And it phenomenon of craving is something that I can't experience with my senses. So I'm having this abnormal reaction that doesn't have any sort of like physical manifestation of it. And, you know, I used to think that, that the reason that I was drinking, the, the amount that I was drinking was because I was changing my mind about how much I wanted to drink or just, or just saying, you know, oh, well, I don't have to shower tomorrow. I'll just, you know, sleep in, whatever it was. Like I thought that I was making a decision in my mind, but the way that we talk about craving in this program and in this book is it's something that's physically happening once I've put alcohol in my body. And so this, this abnormal reaction, that's this phenomenon of craving. And, um, he talked about right before this, a physical craving for liquor. It's limited to me as an alcoholic, to Donna as an alcoholic. It's, you know, those of us in here, we're, it's, it was so 
so confusing to me when I realized, and it was like, it was like a light bulb moment, honestly, because I was like, people don't drink like me. Oh my God. I get it. And I remember, like, my mom was the type of person that would leave half a glass of wine on the table because it got warm. And I'm like, well, no. And, and, oh, like, this is, you know, this is why I'm drinking. And I love what this, this says here. So it never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So it might not always occur. And for me, I, I drank, I drank out of the gates to excess. Like that was me. However, there are women that I've met and I know come into Maggie's and that were able to drink with control for years of their life. But this is saying that this, this craving, this abnormal reaction, they tell us later that it's a progressive disease. It never occurs in, in somebody who's a non-alcoholic. And uh, never is a, a very strong word. But so there are those of us as alcoholics who can get in here and, and say that, you know, they drink normally for 10 years, one glass of wine after dinner, and then all of a sudden they, they couldn't just stick to that one anymore. And then it says that we, we can't ever safely use alcohol in any form at all. I check my, you know, NyQuil, like I don't do NyQuil liquid. I stay away from mouthwash. More vanilla cookies. They make imitation vanilla, which is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I don't ingest alcohol in, in, in any other form. And it was why switching from gin, which I thought was my problem, hard liquor, to beer, to wine was not working. Like I couldn't, it was not working. But I love this one sentence in this paragraph. Once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it. Because I, I think this, I call it like a red flag. I don't know. But it, I didn't realize that I had a, a drinking habit that I could not break for years. I didn't, I wasn't interested in changing the way that I was drinking. <laughs> I liked the way that I was drinking. But when I started to want to just go to happy hour and spend my $20, because I'm so sick of spending so much money at the bar, and I just want to spend my $20, and I cannot do that, regardless of my job that I have, the people that I'm with, what I'm drinking, all of this stuff, and I and I beat this, and it will tell us later in you know page 31, it kind of really talks about this, but I will try a lot of ways to break this habit because the last thing that I want is to not be able to drink alcohol, period. <laughs> so yeah, I just, I love to talk about those couple of things. Are you the loved one of an alcoholic? Our family support group serves as a community for friends, loved ones, and family members of alcoholics to learn about alcoholism, understand how to help an alcoholic, and experience an improved quality of life, regardless of the alcoholic's recovery. We have weekly support meetings that meet virtually and in person, as well as a monthly speaker meeting. To find out more about our family support group, visit magdalenhouse.org family. Well, and, and that was the other thing for a lot of AA that I had experienced too, is like support groups are great, right? Having people that are going through the same thing is, is a wonderful thing. And that is enough. 
sometimes. Um, and like, I believe God can do anything, but sometimes it's not. And so this whole um, idea, right, this doctor's opinion, this idea of my disease, uh, the disease, which, i.e., so when I went to treatment, my insurance paid because this has been proven fact. Like, the, these, this thing was heresy in the beginning. The doctor didn't even want to sign his name to it because the medical, his, you know, constituents or whatever in, in the medical field would have shunned him or whatever. Um, how dare you say it takes God and there's nothing we can do? But fortunately, he was willing to do that. And, and that is because the physical component was so important. Step one, admitting I'm powerless over alcohol, right, hyphen, and that my life had become unmanageable. Well, I was really, like an unmanageable life I could get my mind around, but the powerless over alcohol, it, it, it's not that I'm powerless over you know, people, places, and things, or the many ideas that I got around that thought. It, it's strictly that I have the allergy, right? The only reason I know that I have it is because I tested it many, many, many times. And part of that testing it was trying to control it, right? Am I going to be able to drink just this? Or am I going to be able to only spend this much? Or am I going to be able to drink on this day and not that day? Or go here and not there? Or with them and not them, or, right? So I'm going to try it multiple ways, right? And that in itself is a red flag, right? Most people do not have to try to manage their drinking, but that doesn't necessarily, like some people are like, oh yeah, that was a bad crowd or whatever, and they're able to you know, change their circumstances and then it gets better. I tried that <laughs> repeatedly to where I, right, to myself knew that this was not about you know, who or where or how much money or, you know, no credit card or whatever it was. Like, all, I had told myself or admitted to myself that it has nothing to do with that. That for some reason, I cannot control my alcohol no matter how strong the desire or the wish, right? And, and I love that, but then at some times, right, every now and then we're able to pull it off, right? So for me that was like on the first date or on at the brand new jobs happy hour or whatever. And I, I would, but was I able to enjoy it, right? Because that's what it says, that we won't be able to control and enjoy at the same time. So it's not that I'm never, 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 never able to control it. It's that if I'm controlling it, I'm not enjoying it, right? And I'm mad, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and so that in itself, just this is self-diagnosed. That's the other thing. Like if there's someone who's wondering, am I is that am I an alcoholic? Um, and that's really what this book was designed to do, to identify what the alcoholic is, what that looks like, what it doesn't look like, and then are you one? <laughs> Right? And the idea about the depth of weight. So frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, um, which just means them begging, right? Donna, please yeah, don't drink at my wedding <laughs> or whatever it was, right? Or um, 
you know, the judge or the man or they're, they're all just like, please, please, please. And it, and unfortunately, it just doesn't really, well, I'm not going to, or whatever I would think. But the message that can interest and hold these people, alcoholic people, must, another must, have depth and weight. In other words, I have to know that you know, right, this woman that was trying to explain me to me, <laughs> that she knew what she was talking about, right? And it was just like, yeah. And she would tell me enough to where I, because it, if I don't think you know that you know, right, whether it was the judge or whoever it was telling me, I would think, what do you know, you know? But when it was her, and it wasn't about her telling me what to do, she was telling me, I don't know, but like my drinking looked like this, and this is what I did, and this is what my life looks like now. like. How about it? Or, you know, and it was just very helpful. And it was the only time I was willing to actually listen, right? Because I knew that I knew that I knew that she knew about where I was. Not that what it, that it was going to work. I believe, I mean, I didn't think that. I thought, well, yeah, but, you know, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. But I was willing to do it anyway because I knew I was powerless and I, I knew she had had success and, you know, so it was about checking the box, like steps, yep. And um, the joke was on me. Yes. And I love that you kind of circled back to that too, because the stuff and weight and the first must that you pointed out about basically carrying this message, but saying where it says they must do likewise with still others. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I don't need all this stuff, but thank you. And I wanted to... I was like, I don't know, Sip Tulsa's go be helpful. That's what I read of it. And I was like, thanks so much. Goodbye. I think I've graduated and I'm going to go be helpful at church. And I say all the time, like, there are, I'm sure, people that can do that. That's fine. Are they real alcoholic? I have no idea. But for me, I am uniquely qualified to sit in front of y'all and see your heads nod because like I have been in your shoes. Donna has been in your shoes. Donna has been in my shoes. Like, I, like, and there's something about that where, you know, we're able to trust the person that has been there before. And while Dr. William B. Silkworth wasn't an alcoholic, he worked very closely with him and he's, you know, the, the only non-alcoholic I think that wrote in this book, but he was the medical professional that was looking at us and saying like, yes, like what you will find in these pages is true. Like as a doctor, I can confirm this as somebody that has worked with hundreds of, you know, probably thousands of, of um, alcoholics, like this is true. And so it's, it's very important that I carry this depth and weight. And, you know, I, as a sidebar, I say, you know, like, it is so scary to, to feel like you're going to carry this message and you're like, oh, what the heck am I going to talk about? I don't know how I'm going to help an alcoholic. I'm only 30 days sober. How am I going to, like, you are uniquely qualified. Like, you have this depth and weight that can interest somebody who, who has the same bodily and mental difference that, honestly, like, there's plenty of, of counselors and psychiatrists that, that study alcoholism and addiction, but if they aren't one, they can't, they can't speak our language. Like you are, like you speak a language that is exclusive to to alcoholics, which is um, really important to know. And that was kind of a tangent. <laughs>
But I want to read where at the bottom of XXIV, where we start to get into what Donna was saying earlier, where this is more than just a bodily difference. And they say men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over and over and over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. So um, I laughed at what I was listening to with Joe Charlie because where it talks about men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I would tell you that I drink IPAs because of their taste. But honestly, I was looking for the beer that had the highest alcohol by volume, and it was always IPAs. I love what alcohol does for me. <laughs> and it might be the taste is intriguing, but, you know, the way that um, on Joe Charlie Tapes, the way that they put it, because I don't know which voice is whose, but he's, he's saying, you know, I love the taste of mountain spring water. I love the taste of beer, but I don't ever finish a case of mountain spring water. And I'm like, yeah, I love the taste of, you know, uh, uh, Starbucks coffee, but I'm going to, I'm going to stop after like maybe two, if even that much, like I'm not going to go. It's, it's, it's not that. Yeah. I've never drank 24 Sprites. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the taste of it so much. Can't get it up. Well, and I, you know, this is one of those two, and it says that the sensation, right, what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing is so elusive. Right, that that while that I can admit is an injur it, it is injurious. In other words, I have injuries. Like I can admit that I'm not always very good at drinking. You know, I have proof of that. But that I can't differentiate the truth from the false. The truth is, yeah. But now that I know that, I wouldn't make that mistake again. Or right, and and that is starting to get into this idea that it's it's more than just the knowledge of this disease, right? I know, I know that I know that I have this thing, and then on day three, my brain goes, no, you don't. Uh, this time's going to be different, right? And and I'm fully bought into the idea. Oh my gosh, yeah, you're right. Like I have a brand new car. I would never do that in this car. Or you know, I mean, it's making perfect sense to me. Because I can't differentiate. I don't, I don't, I can no longer tell really just my reality, which is chances are if I take one sip, you know, that I'm gonna burn it to the ground. And that's just as likely as I'll make it home on time. Like those two, like it's a toss-up. There's there's not uh yeah, well, and then it's, I love how it says that this happens again over and over and over and over, right? That idea that waking up, you know, we're remorseful and the firm resolution never, 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 right? Like how many times did I do that over and over again? Um, and that that's part of it. 
Um, and I know there are people that come and they get sober the first time they try, but I believe too, it's because that willingness to admit defeat just happened a whole lot earlier for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was going to prove them wrong or prove myself wrong or whatever it was. <laughs> Stick it to them. Yeah. <laughs> I love this part where it talks about where it uses the words, they're restless, irritable, and discontented. And honestly, I think the best way to, to describe that is like, I feel uncomfortable in my own skin without a drink. Like I feel I, I'm on edge. I'm anxious. I'm like scared. I'm, you know, tapping my finger. Like I, like I, I need it. Um, but also like, it's, it's not something that is just negative. And I think we think of those things as negative. I can be having a, a beautiful day um, and just decide, well, you know, it'll make this better. I'm, I'm like, I'm having a great day and I'm still discontent with it. <laughs> and I'm like, the thing that will make this better is a couple drinks. So it says that I, I'm, I'm feeling this way. And then unless I can experience what it feels like, so for me, it was just to have it in my car, honestly. Like, I was like, okay, we're good. Didn't close. Uh, that comfort, that ease, that like, I am going to be okay right now. And, you know, it comes with that, like, that first couple of, of drinks from my, my glass, or it's just that it's in the car. And and these, these drinks that I'm having... Um, I see other people drinking with impunity, which means without consequence. My roommate, she, so when I first got sober, I was living with a roommate who she could go, like she would party really hard on a Friday night and then she wouldn't drink again for like three weeks. And then, you know, she would be like, oh, I'm gonna have a glass of wine with dinner. And then she would just, you know, like have like three drinks out when we were out. And I'm like, I just have to figure out how to drink like Danielle. She doesn't have consequences. She drinks the way that I want to be able to drink. I just, I want to be able to. And so I'm looking at other people. And then, you know, I, I was also surrounded by a lot of people that, that drink a lot. Like I was, I was working in the service industry and we would go out every night, whether it was a good night or a bad night. And people would drink, drink for drink with me. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Like I just drink like these people around me. And then they would get a, a, a new girlfriend or a new job or have a baby. And all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I'm just going to come out for two drinks and then I'm going to go home. And they would. And I would be like, well, maybe I need a new job or a, a new baby or, you know, like, thank God I didn't have a baby to try and make that happen. But like me, I just need these things. And so then it says, like, after I've succumbed to this desire again, so that's that, that mental part, the desire, as so many do, and then, so I'm, I'm drinking because I've succumbed to it, the phenomenon of craving develops, and then I go through this spree that I've been through over and over, and it's well known, and, um, and then I come out of it, and I'm like, oh my God, like, I can't keep doing this. I am so tired of being hung over. I'm so tired of losing my phone. I'm so tired of getting sent home. I don't want to do this anymore. And I truly mean it whenever I say, I meant it whenever I say, so I'll go again and, and you know, I'm going to say, just like Don was saying, I'm just going to have a few. And then it became like, I really can't do this anymore. And I remember the first time I thought like, I don't think I can drink anymore. I was like, oh my God that's crazy. <laughs> I'll just have one. And I knew like in the back of my head that having one was not going to work. 
But I was still convinced that that was what I was going to do. And so I keep waking up and I'm like, whether I'm swearing off of the gin or the wine or the people or like literally saying like, I cannot drink anymore. I do it again. And I'm back in the spree and I've been here before and I'm so sick of it. And this is, you guys, when I started to really feel like I was crazy. Like I mm-hmm. thought I was just like, Oh, that's me. Well, and so that's right where it says, and unless, right, we're at the top of XXIX, um, this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. An entire psychic change is a big deal, right? So, and I always thought that that was just about changing how, me changing how I think, about alcohol, right? That's surely that's what that means. But that's the um, like the bottom part where it's real like small print or whatever is I can't do that. Like no matter how I try or no matter how much in- great information I get that is applicable to me, I cannot somehow get from where I think, well, but I, why would I ever do that? I'm never going to do that again. I, I'm not going to, I promise. Or what? And to an entire psychic change to where the reason I'm here, right, and, you know, walking embarrassed and getting on camera and saying it, it's because I am going to do it again. Like, my truth is that I'm going to do it again. Like, that, me left to my own devices, Right? I am in, no longer crazy or whatever about this idea that I'm going to be able to somehow understand something enough or do something enough. And whether that's sobriety or the program or drinking or whatever, right? Like there's, there's something beyond me that I cannot achieve. And that's why I thought it was so interesting when my sponsor would say, when I started this process and, and, and did the steps, and she was like, you don't have to th- worry about not drinking anymore. And I just thought, well, how's that going to work? I mean, how am I not going to drink if I'm not thinking about not drinking, right? <laughs> and in just as elusive, right, as it is to someone who has not experienced the phenomenon of craving, that 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 strong, just hating yourself, knowing you're not going to do it, waking up and saying, I won't, I won't, I won't, right? And then yet, what, you know, later that night or five minutes from then or whatever, you know what I mean? Because my husband will say, like, what do, what do you mean you can't stop, you know? Like, <laughs> after one, what does can't stop mean? And just like explaining that to them, that they're just never, 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 never going to understand is explaining the program to an alcoholic. Like, I don't know how to tell you how it works. Like, I don't, I don't know why it is that this entire psychic change isn't about how I think about alcohol. It's how I think about everything. Right? Because I'm, it's not like I'm not going to get irritable, restless, and discontent again. You know, that's going to happen. Um, but somehow, and nobody's more, more convinced it was a miracle than me. Right? Like, I know that something happened. And now, all of a sudden, right? And it was probably in the first six months or, or whatever, 
that I am no longer mad about the fact I'm never going to drink again, right? It's, it's like you, or like I just had that, not just, yeah, no, drinking for me is bad, and you're right, I should never do that again. It's like, oh my God, drinking for me is bad, <laughs> and I don't ever have to do that again, you know? And it's just like, what? But it's true. I could not have gotten from point A to point B on my own. Not that it's cured. Like, I'm not cured, right? I have this daily reprieve contingent on, you know, my, my spiritual life, which for me just means, am I mucking up my relationship with my higher power, right? Am I treating people badly? Am I lying? Am I, you know, all the things that muck it up for me. Because that's, and that, and the program would, I, I never would have been able to get there without walking through the process and realizing, like, I think that might have worked. Yeah. Or still works. Uh-huh. And so I think, too, like, I love that you're going into all this because the doctor isn't just, like, legitimizing some scientific you know, evidence of, you know, of what's in these pages, because as you will find out very soon, if you have not yet already, is that this is a a spiritual program that we stopped talking about alcohol at page 44, essentially. And, And that was part of why, you know, the doctor was saying, like, if you think this is like a little bit, you know, fluffy for me as a doctor to essentially be endorsing, like, this is what I've seen. And I love this paragraph that I didn't read, but it's on the other hand, on that XXIX, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, and I was told a psychic change is a rearrangement of my thoughts and my ideas, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Those rules are the the steps. And this seemed crazy. (laughs) I really, like, I I try to be very clear when I talk about the program that I I work. 12 steps, and I explained in this book, and it's what I work with my sponsor, Donna, and God. There's the fellowship, which is people coming together for meetings. And they're, you know, everybody, every meeting is a little bit different. The program does something for me that I did not even believe was possible. I truly thought that what being an Alcoholics Anonymous meant was that I was going to go to a meeting every day and talk about that I, great job, I, I didn't have a drink. I didn't even think about drinking. I thought about drinking, I didn't even pick up a drink. That's what I thought it was. And what has actually happened is this psychic change. This, this, my thoughts have been rearranged when it comes to alcohol, because what we learn in, in working this program is that I'm actually insane when it comes to alcohol. I have this mental obsession. I have a, um, I'm, I have a disease that centers in my mind and in my body, and I am going to do whatever it takes, do whatever rerouting it takes to get to that first drink that I need to. But then I, I work these, the, I followed, I, I put out this effort and followed a few simple rules and continue to do that to the best of my ability today. And I have this psychic change that like, 
I don't think anybody would have believed what happened for the, the girl that walked into AA however long ago. That just seemed crazy. I thought I was like, oh, well, this is just how Nina's going to have to live now. Which is, I mean, I think in the beginning we're always looking for an easier, softer way, right? And I promise going to a meeting one hour a day is a whole lot easier than trying to live out these principles. <laughs> but the reward is, I mean, the, the reward is minuscule comparatively. But so the doctor's opinion and how she was saying that second must, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. And that's the thing. So I've admitted, right? So if I'm taking step one, I'm admitting I have that allergy that I can go, yep, you know, I, you're right. I am an alcoholic, right? But then there's that hyphen, which is a completely different thought and that our lives have become unmanageable. And so here again, it was a totally new idea for me because I thought it was the unmanageability of my life, right? That's what it sounds like, that my life, life has become unmanageable. But the fact of the matter is, that's not what I have trouble managing. I, in fact, think I managed my life pretty well. I mean, to an outsider, right? So there were people at the end and now I know it's because I'm a big fat liar. You, you know, when I went to my boss and said, I need to go to treatment, it was like, what for? You know, and it was just more alcoholism, you know? And, and it's because I was, and I, I think I had better credit when I was drinking, just because I thought, well, if I pay my bills, I'm not an alcoholic, right? And so it's just that I cannot manage that decision. I, I cannot have the psychic thought process that will, after a time, continue to say, drinking's not good for you, right? After some amount of time or some, you know, enough meetings or whatever I, I thought, I thought at some time I'm going to be able um, like I'll learn enough or I'll do enough or you know what I mean and the fact of the matter is that I cannot manage after a while to stay convinced that I have the allergy right and so whether you were born with it or whether you acquired it over time which it can happen not just with this allergy but you live in central Texas long enough like you can acquire all kinds of allergies cedar and you know <laughs> me. Yeah. like this is not the only one that reacts that way I think I was born with it but that's either neither here nor there but I cannot stay convinced of that that I know that I know that I know that I know until I go well do I really know is it still <laughs> Right? And, and so that's the unmanageability. I have this mental, like she said, obsession. And so unless I can get, and for me what that looked like is happy and sober, right? Because irritable, restless, discontent is going to happen, but that doesn't have to affect my true happiness, right? Or, or I may get unhappy about things, but I'm perfectly clear on the fact that a drink is not going to help. Like, there is nothing bad enough that I can't make worse. <laughs> and that's what I'm clear on, right? I've had this I, I, just total psychic change of the awareness of that fact, that it's never going to get good enough or bad enough, that somehow I will be delusional around this is going to help. 
right? Either help me have more fun or help ease the pain. It was that was just an, a delusional thought. And it tells me on this step one that later in the book it tells me that I have to fully admit this to my innermost self. I have to fully concede to my innermost self that that I do not drink like other people and that this idea has to be smashed, that my drinking is both bodily and mentally different than others. And, you know, I think further on in the doctor's opinion, he gives a lot of different examples of what alcoholics are like. I mean, we, we are different people from all walks of life. We don't share the same, the same background and the same life, the same life experiences, but we do share this common denominator of alcoholism and there are some of us and I think you know I was one of them like I I wanted to just get this in my head you know like I like if I could understand maybe what was different about me I could I could beat it and it and it talks about it gives us a lot of this in this book about like like how I have this obsession to like to figure it out to figure out how to drink regularly when it's can I interrupt you right yeah. there? Just because when you said in this that I had this idea I could beat it. Yes. And that in itself, okay, beating it was not to do it anymore. <laughs> you know? Yes. But I'm gonna do it again to prove you I I beat it. And, and I mean it was just that it was that crazy idea. And that's why people look at us like we are crazy, right? Because we're, like, somebody who's non-alcoholic, just like you were saying your husband doesn't understand, like, how you can't, like, I can explain it. I can say, read this. I can say, come and sit in AA meetings with me and and learn about it. And they're going to get maybe a little bit better understanding of it up here, but they will never know what it feels like to be in my body and to feel like I literally cannot stop and not only can I not stop I can't stop stopping I every day I'm like no more like I'm, I'm, I'm quitting today and we we get all this uh, information and um, we do have to do something with it if I'm a real true alcoholic I can't just read this and be like thank you so much Here's this book back. I, thanks for lending that to me <laughs> You know, like I have to, this is a textbook that I'm going to study and I'm going to go back and I have to learn the definitions and I have to have a teacher that's going to teach me how to go through it and, and understand it and work it and what to do when I mess up or, you know, whatever it is. And that's how we work this program. And I thought that sounded like a, I thought that sounded like the worst thing in the world. I, the life that I have today, I have because I have recovered from this and I continue to work this program and God does for me what I cannot do for myself. Not just in alcohol. God brought me a lovely wife that I never think I would have found ever. Like, on my, like there are incredible things that happen as a result of, of working this program because surprise, my problem is not alcohol. My problem is this lack of power, this powerlessness. I mean, I'm gonna let Donna kind of wrap it up and then we'll see if you have questions so we have time for questions oh yes well and as you were talking I was just thinking about recent conversations and 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 the fact that the matter is I want to want to stop drinking right that's what it looks like in the beginning because I really don't want to stop drinking but so I want to want to and and that's really 
what it is, is what this program allowed me in the understanding of my unmanageability, right? Somehow I can't keep that thing that says don't do it intact for very long is I'm going to, and then now I've just kind of lost my thought, but not getting my way, right? That's what it really is. <laughs> and that still happens all the time. And so how can I be okay with really the biggest not getting my way, which was I'm not ever going to drink again. <laughs> but I lived that out in, in the fact that if I can do that and somehow God make me see life is going to be okay, then on that daily reprieve is just the little not getting my way that I go through all the time is just, if, if I can chip away at that, right, and realize that that is my problem, like to my core, I'm not okay if it's not coming off the way I thought or the way I hoped or the way I prayed for or the, you know, whatever I, I think. And it's all just so, it, in the beginning, in, it so, seems so untangible. It seems just like la-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's why I love how this ends, where he says that, however, uh, well, in, he's talking about a, a guy that was drunk and now he's not. And he says he has not had a drink. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book, which means he completed the steps and was carrying the message. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through and through. Perhaps he came to scoff. He may remain to pray. And I, I mean, I promise you, I scoffed the whole time I was doing it. Like, you want me to read what again? You want me to make what list? You want me to go tell them what, <laughs> right? And it was the whole time thinking, well, what's that gonna do? You know, right? I, it wasn't that I had the thought process changed that made me willing to do it. It was that I did it going, okay. And after a while, then it was, it was the understanding that, um, like, I have no idea. I have no idea what I need or how to do it or how to get here on time or, you know what I mean? But God has a plan for me, and, and in it, I have realized, is just doing what it takes to stay, stay convinced of, of that allergy. I mean, I can't, I can't emphasize enough that, like, I'm broken and I'm never going to be fixed, but I can try every day to achieve, like, getting fixed, and somehow it happens in the trial. And to stay convinced. I love that you said that, because the best way that I stay convinced that I have an abnormal mind and an abnormal body, because again, like, working this is, is, is working one-on-one -on -one with another alcoholic. I truly believe that the reason, like, I love talking about step one so much. I mean, if you've come to my meetings, you know I'm like, will world nerd out on that is because like it keeps me in step one it keeps me in my truth and i i have experienced the feeling of like what it feels like to say mm, i've had this for three years i've done this for three years i know what i'm doing i don't think i need this thank you so much anymore and that little voice starts to get a little bit just it comes back and i'm really grateful that i ran ran back to my home group and, and started working with Donna at that point. But 
I'm never cured. I'm never cured of this. I only get to, to keep what I continue to give. It's not based on anything that I've done before today. So with that, what questions do y'all have? Please. Not all at once. Please have a question. <laughs> yeah, that, that is great. <laughs> y'all are great. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm not that good. Okay. Oh, good. Thank you. You in the back. <laughs> so when did you two start noticing the second change happening in your life? Did the men go first? Yeah. So I was, I'm responsible, or, or so I did this the first time I went through all the steps. I got through them in about six weeks. Now, and I thought that was lightning fast. Now I know, like I was dragging my feet a lot because it doesn't take six weeks. <laughs> but so I had, I'd done that and then I got a commitment, um, which is where like, go get a place where you're responsible to carry the message. And, um, and I did that and they didn't let me talk, which was super cool. I was so excited um, because I was learning to carry the message. But, and then I was doing that and then I just remember having to go, right? And that was really the first time in my life I'd ever actually kept a commitment, which is hard to say for someone that had been divorced. And, you know, I mean, I, I just, I thought I knew that I knew that I knew and that I was solid and I'm loyal and I'm all these things until I don't like you. <laughs> and, and I, but so now it was like, you have to be there, just show up. And so I would show up and I just remember one time going I guess they were letting me talk by then but and it being awesome and it was the first I hate to say one of the first times in my life that I had ever done something I did not want to do like I did not want to go and the whole way there I'm thinking uh, you know whatever excuses and all and then I go and it's just like oh my god that was awesome <laughs> right and that was God that was as real to me <laughs> of just that whole idea of like, don't worry, you just do what you can, right? Show up when you say you're gonna be there, which now looks like just keep your word or, you know, whatever. So, and, and then I'll do the rest, right? I, I cannot somehow not drink on my own, but I can do my best to try to show up and to, you know, keep my word and not lie, cheat and steal and, and all the things that I, um, was able to do before. I love that. My, um, when I think of psychic change, I immediately go to the obsession of just like, when, when did I stop thinking about drinking? And I remember I was working the steps with my, my first sponsor and she was, I was, I was like, when does this go away? When does this go away? When does this go away? And she was like, Nina, keep doing the work. And I was frustrated because I was like, that's not the answer I want. You know, like I want, you know, on day 48, you will, you know, like that's what I wanted. And, and so I remember one day I was like, oh, okay, but still sometimes is, but, but I remember one day I was just sitting and, and it was, I was probably a couple months sober. I, I really wish I knew. I think that's, I have a terrible memory, but I think it's also why it's so important for women who are newly sober and have worked the 12 steps to be active in carrying the message because you have something that we don't. 
you have something that where you can sit in, in front of somebody who is three days sober and you're like, guess what? I'm 33 days sober. And they're like, really? Y'all know that. Like, y'all know what it feels like to meet somebody that's in that position. So I digress off of that, but I don't remember what it was, but I remember I all of a sudden thought, oh my God, I haven't thought about alcohol. And I, I couldn't believe that because every day and, and you know, I... I Honestly, I think it's it's one of the hardest things about working this program when you first get sober is that your brain is still like alcohol. And you're like this is a this is a joke. Like you're lying. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying and that's why I was like sponsor, when am I going to feel better? And and I was like, "Oh my gosh." And for me, I have an outside issue that was also a, a big thing for me and for me that was a year. It was a year, and I remember um, I was on like a, a, tr- a vacation, and I was thinking about how like I was still like having these like obsessive thoughts, and I just was frustrated. And and then in, in, at a year, I realized that that was gone. And I know like it, it's different for all of us, but the thing that I was told was to just keep going, and. And keeping going and keeping, I was also going to this commitment that I was like, oh God, I hate this stupid commitment. I was like in, I was in, uh, I was going to this place where women lived. It was a sober living. And I was like carrying the message with my sponsor and she kept asking me to like share things. And I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be sharing. (laughs) And, but I kept doing that. And it's still to me to this day, like when I go and carry the message to where I go is greenhouse and I'm like, oh, I'm so cozy and comfy and I don't want to get on this couch. And I do the thing that I don't want to do. I leave that and I'm like, I am walking on sunshine. And it doesn't always feel like that. I mean, 99% of the time, I feel like it does after I leave something that I didn't ever want to go to in the first place. But like, I am continually in awe of what is happening in my mind as a result of working this program. Even stuff that has nothing to do with alcohol, but it has everything to do with me being selfish and self-centered. And I think exactly what she's saying is referring to the educational variety. It's not like I was like, oh, I did it. I did something I didn't want to do. I'm never going to drink it again. It was like you, you slowly realized, like, wait a minute, that, that it had already happened. And I didn't even know it. And it, right? Mm-hmm. But that's, it's not like the awareness of it happening. It's the awareness that it had happened. And I didn't notice. And that was kind of the educational variety. You know, not that I also had, you know, kind of that oh, moment too, which came after that, after I had kind of changed the way I was living. <laughs> but so, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, it's the same for, I mean, it's different for everybody. So there's no, but I have heard, and I do now believe, and this used to make me mad, that if you don't know if you've had your spiritual experience, that you haven't had it. Spoiler Yeah. <laughs> Bummer. Um, but I think it's true. Yeah. And, and it's also true that you get to have many more spiritual experiences and psychic changes as you go through the program. And aren't they usually while you're working with someone else? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had like a spiritual experience down on my knees saying the third step prayer. Not when I said my third step prayer. <laughs> that was like, I don't think that worked. But, um, but since then, right, like I could feel the power of God and, and all that. And then probably drank again. But, but it was real for me. <laughs> I felt it. Anybody else? Thanks for the question. Yeah.
I just have a comment. Uh, my name's Brooke, and I just want to say uh, thank you for like expressing that you weren't 100% super excited and pumped about every step of the way. Because like I feel like because I'm I'm not super excited and pumped about every step of the way. So I feel like by thinking by that way of thinking, I'm thinking, well, maybe I don't want bad enough. Therefore, I'm not going to get sober and I'm going to drink again. Mm -hmm. So thank you for letting us know that. Welcome. I love, it's not in the doctor's opinion, but I love on, in, and um, there's a solution where it tells us there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, because I wasn't excited to do the steps. I was terrified. I was like, okay, can I pick the ones that I want to do, which is um, the easy ones, which can you tell me which ones are the easy ones? I wasn't skipping to do the 12 steps. Even when I had to rework the steps, I was, I was uh, just because of getting a new sponsor, I'm like, oh, I have to rework the steps again. It's uncomfortable and it um, has nothing to do with your willingness, so. Well, and I always thought it was about doing it right. Like there was something about, I didn't do it right or I'm not gonna do it right and all that kind of stuff and there's not. Like there is no wrong way to do this or work a program. There's only not doing it. Thanks for being here, y'all. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.